are listening to Radio Maria and this evening for our Credo pro program I have the pleasure to bring to you Father Colin Carr. Good evening Father Colin. Good to be here. It's good to hear you. And Father Cullen is a Dominican friar. He resides at the Blackfriars Dominican Friary in Cambridge. And Father Cullen, tonight your, your title is The Bible, the Storeroom of Our Faith. Before I set you off to tell us all about that, would you begin with a prayer for us? Yes, indeed. From an old hymn we used to sing at school, I think. Lord, thy word abideth, and our footsteps guideth. Who its truth believeth, light and joy receiveth. Teach us, Lord, to listen to your word, to hear your word, and to rejoice that that word is Jesus himself, our Saviour, our friend, our Redeemer. And in, in his name we ask it, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good. So uh, shall I just fire ahead, Aileen? Please do, yes. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Well, it's good to be with whoever is um, listening. Uh, welcome, because uh, we're talking about something massively important. I've already uh, spent a program talking about how I had this marvellous evangelical background, and I'm very, very um, glad that I had such a background, because it taught me, apart from a, a deep, deep love of Jesus as my saviour, uh, the love of the scriptures. Um, and there's always been a, a bit of a an argument between Catholics and Protestants, not between Catholics and Orthodox. Um, I mean, they argue about other things, but um, Catholics and, and Protestants in the sense of, of post-Reformation churches um, as to what our authority is. And I was brought up as an evangelical Christian to say that our authority is the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God is the Bible, and that's it. Whereas Catholics have put things slightly differently. It used to be put in terms of uh, Catholics believing in the Bible, definitely, yes, and also another thing called tradition. Now, there isn't actually another thing called tradition. It's a tradition is the, the community context in which we believe the Bible and, and try to understand the Bible and get deeper and deeper into the Bible. Luther insisted uh, on two um, onlys. Only faith will save us and only the Bible is our authority. Sola fide, sola scriptura. But Catholics want to put it in a slightly different way which is that the Bible is indeed God's word to us and is accepted by the church and in the church. And we believe that the living tradition of the church, the church with uh, bishops and the Pope and, and ordinary believing Christians who together 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, are growing deeper and deeper into their love of Scripture and their understanding of Scripture, that is the tradition in which we live. And we understand the Bible in a living tradition. People, for instance, sometimes argue that, say, the dogmas about Mary, the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption, well, they're not in the Bible. No, but they don't contradict the Bible either. They make sense in the light of the Bible. So we do believe that we're... Um, in a sense, in the, the same boat as our fellow Christians who, who just just believe in the Bible. Uh, and many of our fellow Christians now would say, well, of course, we do realize that it's the church which uh, tells us to believe the Bible and which helps us to believe the Bible. So we're not perhaps all that different after all. But this title that I've used, The Bible, The Storeroom of Our Faith, um, is because I think we don't simply say the Bible is our faith, uh, whereas I was perhaps brought up more or less to think that. But the Bible is that storeroom which has everything we need to understand our faith, to know what our faith is. Um, almost like a cook's storeroom, the larder or, or fridge or whatever, where you find everything you need, <laughs> except if you're me trying to cook and you look for the olive oil and someone's nicked it and put it somewhere else where you can't find it. But that's a different matter. <laughs> um, the, the, um, the Bible has everything we need, and this helps us to concoct, if you like, a way of living now, a way of understanding the world now. So all the theologians who have been a bit more systematic than the Bible, um, they have used the Bible and they've um, thought of themselves as deriving their faith from the Bible, but they've very often tried to make it more systematic. For instance, the, the fundamental doctrine of the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you do find that in the Bible, but uh, you don't not, you don't find anywhere where it says um, God is properly understood as Trinity, and the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, um, and they are different and yet utterly the same God. Um, they don't say that in so many words, but we definitely get the 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 doctrine of the Trinity from the Scriptures. I want in this first talk, though, I want to talk mainly about the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. Now, there are differences between Catholics and Protestants as to what is accepted as the Bible, the canon of the Bible, the, the sort of rule of faith about what the Bible is. Um, Luther only accepted the Hebrew Scriptures, whereas in the time of Jesus and around the time of Jesus, um, the Jews uh, had some more scripture, which is, mainly come down to us in Greek. Um, books like the Maccabees and the wisdom lit literature, the wisdom books, and so on. But um, that's a, a minor point. But the, the Old Testament in Jewish understanding, and most Jews would see the Old Testament as the Hebrew Old Testament, um, it consists of Torah and the prophets, 
and the writings. And the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the, the law, um, the books of Moses, traditionally called the books of Moses. Uh, not that Moses wrote them uh, exactly, because he um, uh, they tell about the death of Moses, so he couldn't really have written that bit. Um, but the Torah comes to us as the, the sort of foundation of biblical faith in the Old Testament and tells about how God creates the world, how people first uh, discovered how to live or how not to live, and how God then chooses Abraham as someone through whom he's going to bring blessing to the whole world. And the stories in Genesis and Exodus and so forth are about Abraham and his descendants, the children of Israel, Jacob, um, and how they began gradually to learn that they were God's specially chosen people. And then the prophets. Now, the prophets doesn't just mean Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets who had written texts. It's, it's the, those books which we also see, uh, we in our modern way, see it uh, as history the books of the kings and so forth. They are known as the earlier prophets, the earlier prophets, because they are prophecy. History is prophecy as far as the Bible is concerned. I was saying this morning at Mass, in case anybody remembers, because they were listening to the Mass from Blackfriars, that Elijah is a prophet who appears in what are called the earlier prophets, not because Elijah was earlier uh, than Isaiah, he was earlier, but, but uh, it's because in those earlier prophets, so-called, the, the, the history is of the children of Israel um, being challenged and either responding well to the challenge or failing to respond to the challenge, being disloyal to God. And many of the stories in the books of the kings are about how the, how the king the leaders of the people failed to worship the true God and failed to live with justice. For instance, you may know, remember the story of Ahab, whom um, Elijah had contact with, to say the least. He really had um, more or less fisticuffs with him half the time. But he, he had to challenge him because Ahab uh, acted very cruelly against um, someone who had a, a Naboth who had a vineyard and, and Ahab wanted to get it and his, his, his wife uh, stirred him on to, um, to just get Naboth murdered and, and then get the vineyard that he wanted. Well that sort of behaviour was something that the prophets spoke against but also the behaviour whereby kings would set up altars to other gods, foreign gods and fail to um, to, to follow the one true God. So that's the prophets. And then the writings are things like the Psalms and the books of wisdom and things like that, which tell us um, how people reflected on the meaning of God's love for us, God's contact with us. So um, particularly the Psalms, of course, are meditations on our relationship with God. And they're very, very realistic, some of the Psalms. Some of them are a bit pious and smug, 
Um, I don't quite um, quite like all of them very much, but that's my problem that I don't like them. Not yours. Not not um, not. It's not the problem of the Psalms either. It, but I just find them a little bit um, sometimes too smug, or suggesting that the good always have a good time and the bad have a, a bad time. That doesn't seem to me to happen all the time. Um, but they're also very realistic about Lord. God, you, you, what are you doing? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The famous words which we associate with what Jesus says. That's the beginning of one of the Psalms, Psalm 22 in, in your Bible. Um, and it's the, uh, it's the way that um, people grappled with God, uh, King David or the other people who wrote Psalms. So the Bible has this, the the basis that the Torah for how God began to form his people and gave them laws and a way of living but having of course first liberated them the law is for liberated people not for slaves he liberated them from slavery in Egypt then you've got the, the these histories of how it all worked out and the Bible is very very realistic it, it's Judaism had the the good sense to say uh, we weren't always good, we weren't always successful, and the end of the books of Kings and Chronicles really show a sort of disaster how um, Israel got defeated by the Babylonians, first of all by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians, and everything really seemed to have ended on, on a on a very sad note. But then there was the beginning of the uh, restoration, um, much smaller time restoration than in the big days of King David and King Solomon, but small time restoration. And that's what we have to live with most of our lives, small time restoration. How we, in, in our small way, we begin to grow into uh, a greater likeness to God. And so that's the Old Testament for us. It's telling us about God's way with us and we dip into it. We don't go to it for doctrine as such, um, answering questions like um, what is sin, but it gives pretty good descriptions of sin, both sin against God in terms of not worshipping God alone and sins against humanity. Um, against justice, because the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, stands up for those who are vulnerable, the widows and the orphans, and so on. And again, today's story uh, at Mass about Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, a Sidonian town, is a, a, a sort of example of God's love for those who are vulnerable, those who think they're going to die because they've got no more food. And Elijah comes along and shows God's power to the widow so that she never runs out of flour and oil to bake bread and keep going during the famine. So that's the, uh, one of the ways in which I think we can say that the Bible is a storeroom. It gives us the stories, um, that's purely coincidental, the words sound the same, of course, stories from the storeroom, but um, they they show us what God is like, and they, they help 
to form our imagination, to form our understanding and our attitude to God. And, and so there's, there's lots and lots in the Old Testament. Most Catholics are not terribly well aware of the Old Testament because in the old days, Mass didn't include readings from the Old Testament. Nowadays it does, but you tend to get little gobbits of, of Old Testament. And you, you, you really need someone to say, well, what the context is, what's been going on. And it's good that things like the story of Elijah are read for several weeks uh, on end at Mass. So those who go to Mass daily will get that story. But it's something that is well, well worth reading. It's, it's a great idea for a Catholic to have a Bible and to dip in and then to discover ways of reading it and beginning to understand it more and more. And the Second Vatican Council, the the um, in in one of their documents, Dei Verbum, the Word of God, or on divine revelation. So it precisely, I, I was surprised actually. I was rereading it this afternoon that it said the Old Testament is a storeroom. <laughs> oh, oh, that's exactly what I wanted to call it. I that's lovely. That it, says. <laughs> it says it's a storeroom for our faith, and um, so get yourself a Bible if you haven't got one, and preferably one which has a few um, notes and things. The, very often copies of the Jer Jerusalem Bible have notes in them. Of course, it makes the Bible very big and bulky because it's an enormous book. It's not just a book. It's 66 books with the Hebrew and even more than that with the Catholic extra bits um, for the Old Testament. So, um, so it's a library, but uh, a library and a storeroom, very similar things. So... That's where I'll pause for the moment, and next uh, we'll talk about the New Testament, but um, I hope that's all right for the time being. That's fabulous. Thank you, Father Cullen. So I'm going to give us a, a short music break, and we'll be back with you very soon, dear listener.
You are listening to Radio Maria. We have Father Colin, Father Colin Carr, and he has been speaking to us about the Bible as a story of our faith. We've had a whistle-stop tour through the rooms of the Old Testament. And now, Father Colin, we're looking forward to hearing about the New Testament. Good. Thank you, Eileen. We, um, we all know the New Testament much better, I think. Um, well, not me, because I was brought up on a very, very Old Testament as well as New Testament kind of um, manner of, of reading the Bible, because uh, the whole Bible is the Word of God, and uh, we, we got to know it very, very well. And my dad was uh, used to tell my brother and me stories from the Bible, more or less even before we could read, and then we'd uh, learn to read ourselves simplified stories and uh, got to know all about Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath and all sorts of exciting things. I mean, the Old Testament is full of really, really good stories. But we come now to the New Testament, and obviously the bit of the New Testament or the bits of the New Testament that Catholics know best are the Gospels, the four Gospels. You can, I don't know if it's easy nowadays to get a, what's called a synopsis, but a synopsis is a very good idea. It, it's a book with, with three or four columns, depending on whether you use John's Gospel or not, because John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But you've got your four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, <laughs> Sorry, it just reminds me of a, a story that some Baptist friends of ours told us in um, way back when we lived in Croydon about 70 years ago of, of an Australian family that had four sons called Matthew, Mark, Luke and Fred. But um, <laughs> that's not relevant. But I mean, those of you who know, know the names of the Gospels will find that a funny story because they obviously got it wrong somehow. Um <laughs> But the four Gospels, the, a synopsis is, is so printed that you've got a column for Matthew, a column for Mark, a column for Luke, and it shows you in what ways they say exactly the same thing and in what ways they're different in telling, say, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 or whatever it may be. Um, obviously, John's Gospel is, is rather different, but that too has lots of parallels with the other Gospels. And... And we make a fuss of the gospel. I mean, at Mass, we stand up. Uh, if it's a, a sort of fairly a formal kind of Mass, the, the gospel is incensed, um, uh, just as much as the Blessed Sacrament is incensed. Um, because, as again, as the Second Vatican Council says in the Constitution on Divine Revelation, we are fed from the Word of God, and especially from the Gospels, and by the body of Christ. And of Christ, Christ is in the Gospels. Christ is the Word of God. And you probably remember the beginning of John's Gospel, about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, we believe that Jesus is the Word through whom God made the universe and entered into our world. We, that's the language we use now, and that's partly based on John's Gospel. But again, because the Bible is a storeroom rather than a, um, a, a 
set of doctrines. It isn't in itself a catechism, but it, we need it to catechize ourselves. Um, it doesn't set things out necessarily systematically the way you would have it in sort of the, Catholic, the catechism of the Catholic Church. But the Gospels are there um, telling similar stories, but in, in different ways. For instance, Luke's Gospel, very often, uh, where the others don't mention it, Luke's Gospel mentions that Jesus is praying. He, he prays to the, um, the Father, obviously, um, and, and often he prays and things happen where it's not mentioned in the other Gospels, because Luke is stressing that. Luke also stresses the kindness of Christ, his, his care and compassion for the poor and the vulnerable. Um, there are far more women around in Luke's Gospel, too, um, because the Bible isn't exactly uh, what you might call a, a sort of um, high-level feminist tract <laughs> on the whole. But it's, um, it, it, you know, it was just the culture that they grew up in, which was very, very male. Um, and the the presence of women in Luke's Gospel is a very, very powerful uh, fact in itself. It was pretty revolutionary. Um, the church has been, has had rather a mixed um, um, <laughs> history of how it has uh, had its attitude to it towards women um, challenged and changed and so forth. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but the Gospels are not the only part of um, of the Bible. Uh, of the New Testament. The Book of Acts, of course, is very often seen as a continuation. It was uh, clear indications it was written by the by Luke, as in Luke's Gospel, um, just the way it begins and, and some of the themes it shows. And, and that's a very exciting story about how the Gospel spread through the early church uh, into the Mediterranean world, with Paul ending up in um, in Rome. Uh, and there's a kind of waiting at the end of Acts, as if to say, now the rest of the history of the church has got to be written, and it will be written, but that isn't in the Bible itself. And then, of course, the other uh, parts of the New Testament are the epistles, the the letters written mainly by Paul, but there are also uh, Hebrews and James and 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Jude, other letters, early Christian writings, which um, are apostolic. They're seen as, as written by the apostles to the early churches. Paul is by far the most prolific one, and we get from him uh, a lot of doctrine, especially in the letter to the Romans, the letter to the Galatians, um, and then in Ephesians and Colossians, some very, very interesting uh, pictures of Christ as the cosmic Christ, the one who, through whom God is restoring the whole world, not just um, uh, redeeming human beings, which is great and important and vital, and that's what we can do, but also about how God is restoring all things in Christ. And um, Paul sometimes gets quite angry with his listeners, um, with his readers, in 
Galatians, he finds that they're beginning to depart from the gospel he preached to them about their, uh, receiving their faith through Christ and um, coming to Christ through faith. And he's saying, you, you're, you're beginning to f believe some other gospel. Stop it. <laughs> and, um, you know, he says, you foolish Galatians. Oh, you know, goodness me, what, what's going on? It's as if I've, I've got to um, go into labor pains again for, <laughs> to bring you out into Christ. Uh, not that Paul himself directly knew about labor pains, but, but he, would, he, he uses that image very much. Um, he was sort of aware of the fact of labor pains anyway. So... Um, it, when he's writing to the Corinthians, they seem to have been a pretty um, sort of disorganized lot in some ways, where they had a lot of squabbling, and some of them went into factions saying, I'm a Paul person, I'm a Peter person, I'm an Apollos person, and they... Uh, they had factions, and Paul says, goodness me, don't, don't, you, none of us um, is, is Christ. Christ himself is the one you should be following. Uh, you weren't baptized into Paul, you were baptized into Christ. And there was some pretty bad behavior amongst some of the Corinthians, and he has to um, take them to task for that, which I think is a very, very important um, thing to notice, because there's a danger that Christians, all sorts of Christians, uh, Catholics in particular perhaps, think that the early church was perfect, was absolutely marvelous, full of the joys of Christ, full of the joys of Pentecost, um, you know, absolutely burning with zeal for God all the time. Well, it wasn't. It was a mess. And it always has been, always will be a mess, a mess from which Christ is bringing forth something beautiful, something great, almost like an artist's studio. Uh, any good artist will have a messy studio because they're uh, needing this, that, and the other, and they can't put them all in neat little piles all the time. So uh, in the messy artist's studio, something great and beautiful is being brought forth. And that's what the uh, is happening in the New Testament too, and what is happening through God's purposes uh, in the church at large, because uh, we're always in a mess. We are sinful people who are being uh, brought back more and more deeply to Christ. We have been redeemed, but we are still being redeemed in many ways. And of course, there's one other thing that we find in the New Testament, and that is the very mysterious last book called the Apocalypse. Now, apocalypse means a kind of revelation, and indeed, the book of the apocalypse. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> You're doing well. It's late. <laughs> my, 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 teeth, my teeth are getting in the way. The apocalypse the book of, <laughs> it means the book of Revelation, and it's often called the book of Revelation. I think usually when it's read in uh, Mass, uh, it's read as the book of Revelation. But it's all, if you hear the word apocalypse, don't just, um, you know, give up. Uh, it means revelation. Uh, and, of course, apocalypse is there in revelation in, in, in big letters all over the place. So these strange visions that John uh, on Patmos, Mount, uh, the island of Patmos, is, is having about horrible beasts that come out from the deep sea 
and um, angels and uh, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, who is, of course, Christ himself, um, who is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and who, unlike most lambs, is also a shepherd. And he is, is the one, in the end, who triumphs over all the forces of evil. But it's strange stuff. And um, I know people who say, they, who say, oh, I wish, I wish the book of Revelation wasn't there in the Bible because people get such wacky ideas from it. And they think it tells them when the world is going to end or it, it, they, they sort of think they can identify some political party they dislike as, you know, the, the beast from, from the depths of the sea. Um, and, and so on. So people misunderstand, misappropriate the, the apocalypse quite a lot. But Jesus himself was a preacher of, about the apocalypse. He's, he said, no, things are going to get very bad. There will be signs in heaven and on the earth and people's hearts failing them for fear. And, and he t tells many sort of apocalyptic stories too about the end of the world in, in some of the later chapters of particularly Matthew and Mark. Um, Luke too has some, some apocalyptic things in it. So because in a way you, you simply cannot talk about the ending of the world because we don't know enough about it. So it has to be talked about in images, just as the very beginning of the world is talked about in stories of of how things started. For, for us, it's been Adam and Eve and, and paradise and the loss of paradise and so forth. Other um, Near Eastern religions had um, sort of fairly similar stories about the beginning of the world, about the flood and so on. But Apocalypse is there in a sense, because we, we just don't know how it will be. But the book of Revelation is very much about how, in the end, the lamb who was slain, the apparently defeated one, is actually the triumphant one and is going to bring everything to a good conclusion, whether there be a new heaven and a new earth and the beautiful new city of Jerusalem uh, coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. We, the church, are... Um, a bride of Christ, and and in the end there'll be the the, the marriage between Christ and His Church. Um, it's a very uh, very beautiful picture of, of us marrying Christ, um, and He is the fulfilment of everything. So we start with stories of Jesus the baby, how Jesus is born, um, and then we end up in the new city of Jerusalem with Jesus triumphant and bringing all people together into his city. All those who want to come in, I mean, there's plenty of stuff in the New Testament about the those who choose not to follow Christ, those who choose to um, put themselves outside the covenants. Jesus himself talks about hell and so on. And we we have learnt, I think, as Catholics, that you you cannot actually say that anybody, anybody is in hell, but you have to acknowledge that, that Jesus talked about hell and the possibility of hell. So 
it's uh, it's not a very comfortable thing. I mean, nowadays we all tend to be a bit sort of, oh, God's much too nice to allow people to go to hell. God doesn't send people to hell, but, you know, people might well send themselves to hell. Now, I hadn't actually meant to say all of this, but it is something that we need to um, acknowledge that in the storeroom there is there, there is talk about hell. Jesus himself talked about it more than St. Paul did, actually. Um, and so we, we, we just need to acknowledge that because an important thing to say about the Bible is that some of it is uncomfortable. For instance, going back to the Old Testament, I don't like the book of Joshua because the book of Joshua is all about how the tribes of Israel who had just come from Egypt uh, drive out the other people in Canaan, in, in that land, Palestine, what became um, Israel, um, it drove them out, slaughtered them very often. And, you know, there's horrible sort of ethnic cleansing going on in the book of Joshua, but it's there in our Bible. And it's very important, I think, to say that what's in the storeroom cannot be simply ignored. Um, we may emphasize particular bits of the storeroom and say, well, this language about hell, for instance, or about uh, the Israelites driving out foreign nations um, <laughs> who weren't foreign to begin with, because they, the Israelites were the foreign nation and they drove people out from their homelands. Um, and that kind of, of, of stuff is not nice, but it's there in the canon of Scripture. And it's very important that Catholics recognize, and all Christians recognize, that there is a canon of Scripture. This word canon means, it can mean a measuring rod, or it can mean a sort of rule. And we have our Scriptures, and we acknowledge them as God's Word. And so the uncomfortable bits, um, the bits where the psalmist says, for instance, uh, Oh God, that thou would slay the wicked. I hate them with a perfect hatred. All that stuff is there. And we, we can't deny that it's there. Um, what we make of it, how we use the stuff from the storeroom, is uh, a matter for the church to grow in its understanding about. So... Um, these uncomfortable bits are in the Bible, which is our canonical scripture. It's the, we, we can't get away from it. It's, it's there, but we may emphasize, nowadays on the whole, we emphasize much more the love of God than the fear of God. Um, but there's no harm in having a little bit of fear in the sense of being afraid of, um, of not making the mark, of not of not really responding well to God. So the Bible is a challenge. The storeroom has things in it which we may not know quite what to do with, but it, they're there and we can't throw them out. And, but we, on the whole, we, we have learnt as a church in the 20th and 21st centuries in a, in a world which has been so full of disaster, of cruelty, of horrible things, as well as beautiful things, beautiful creations, marvelous scientific uh, advances, medical advances, and so forth. But in a pretty challenging world, um, we've learned to, um, to see the purpose of God, which is, in the end, to bring all things together under Christ um, and to unite everything in Christ. There are, of course, people who don't want 
to be united in Christ. Um, and we are we have to say that they have the freedom to choose which way they'll go. But we are followers of a Christ who has taken upon himself the suffering of all the world. And he died on the cross for us, not, not simply to pay the price. That's one way we talk about it, what Jesus did. He paid the price for our sin, but to to take upon himself the whole awfulness and chaos of the world. And he expressed this in a way by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Feels sometimes like the world has been forsaken by God. And yet this is God who is on the cross and who is bringing all things together and has the answers beyond what we can understand, but beyond what we can fathom now but he has died for us and risen again and sent the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. So I think I'll pause there, stop there. Thank you, um, Father Cullen. Yeah, yeah, that was, my goodness, you've taken us across swathes of history, haven't you? In, in the space yeah. of like 40 minutes or whatever, you know? Wow. Dear listener, if you have any questions and feel free to ask any question of Father Colin, if you're an expert or if you are not expert, I'm certainly not expert in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Um, any question you can ask, don't be fearful of it being too clever or too stupid. All questions are welcome in this family of Radio Maria or community, if you prefer that word. So the number is 01223 375 And if you have WhatsApp, if you prefer to write a message, you can WhatsApp us on 07502-385-010. We will be back with you very soon to uh, take your questions. If you have any, do call. are listening to Radio Maria and we have been listening to Father Colin talking to us about the Bible. I didn't think we would get so far as an overview of the Old and New Testament, but we have looked at both. And a part I absolutely loved was that I really felt, Father Colin, you brought us down to earth with a slam um, into the messiness of life and that image of the messy studio. Um, I really love that. Is, had you drawn that from somewhere or where does that come from? The messy um, artist studio. Well, I am um, not an artist myself, but I, um, I actually had a, a very good friend when I was in Blackfriars, Oxford and still training uh, as a Dominican. Um, he's actually now married to um, uh, someone who's quite well known in the Catholic community in, um, in Cambridge. Oh. Um, 
and uh, he's an artist, and, and they were living in Oxford then, and he um, he showed me his studio once. I, I thought he, I liked his art. I mean, it was a, quite a, I suppose, a traditional form of art in a way. I mean, it wasn't madly abstract or anything, but he had a studio, which I wasn't that messy, but it, it was messy because you need to have mess around you and sort of tubes, tubes of if, if you're using oil paint and so on, um, uh, and uh, brushes and, and and so forth and and um, you will just have a mess around, just as any classroom if where creative stuff is going on it will be temporarily messy. I mean, hopefully the kids learn to clear up the mess at the end of the day, but. Um, if something isn't messy, <laughs> I feel it's not quite uh, being creative enough. Uh, so there's a particular artist's um, studio that I have in mind when I think about oh, Lovely. <laughs> I think it, <laughs> it's great to think, yeah, because um, our lives can feel so messy and so imperfect and relationships with, with all the people we're with yeah. that we can really know that God is working within all that. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, I often say to people in uh, confession and so on that God actually loves a mess and he can make something beautiful out of it. If we acknowledge that we're a mess, then something good and creative can come out of it. It's just a matter of being truthful and, you know, letting him then take over and, um, and produce something beautiful. And, um, because every you know, every saint is is also a sinner to start with, and um, and most saints would say right up to the end of their lives, I'm I'm just a sinful person, but God uh, God is loving me and showing me love. Fabulous. Um, yes. I, now I've got some questions, and I like I've got loads of questions. So some of these are going to have to wait until you come back again. I hope to another credo evening on the Bible. This one's a general general question, that, and I hope it's not too left field. Um, but we have the Word of God, we have Scripture, and this is, you know, as Catholics or, you know, and even in some, some ways more emphasized for people who are not Catholic, the Bible is being the Word of God and the place where we seek as our source. And I, I'm always flabbergasted. Why did Jesus not write? Did he, did, was he able to write? And if he could write, why didn't he write? Why do we listen to Paul so much and, and Jesus is reported? Yes, it's, that's a very, very good question, that. I'm, I'm sure he could write because he could certainly read because uh, he read the scriptures in the synagogue. Um, so I imagine that he would have um, been pretty literate and, and, um, and so on. I suppose he was so busy. <laughs> He was so busy with with um, preaching and looking after people who were sick and 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 uh, feeding five thousands at a time and so on <laughs> um, that he didn't um, he didn't feel the need to write um, or, have, or even have the time to write perhaps but uh, I suppose his his letter. Um, was the people he was he was working on as it was disciples and he had a hard time getting some you know uh, truth into his disciples heads and some faith really into their lives um and he taught people it's, it's interesting that when at the beginning of the feeding of the five thousand 
uh, in at least one of the Gospels, probably all of them, Jesus goes away trying to get um, a bit of rest and quiet after the apostles have been um, uh, going on their mission. And lo and behold, the, the 5,000 people show up with their tongues hanging out. And the first thing he does, it doesn't sort of do, he doesn't heal them, he doesn't feed them yet, he does later. Uh, he teaches them, he sets himself to teach them at some length. So he certainly taught orally. Um, and I guess that uh, the, the great thing about the Gospels is that people wrote down what he taught. They remembered the things he'd said and they wrote it down. Um, it would be, you'd have thought it would have been easier if Jesus had written it all, and because then we'd really have exactly <laughs> what he meant. Whereas, you know, sometimes maybe people who are reporting the words of Jesus uh, have slightly different versions of what he said. Um, but um, but he didn't he didn't write, and I guess the, the positive about that is that we are his letter, and that. We, you know, the, the people who hear his word are the letter he's writing. To, and so people who have been converted to Jesus and converted by Jesus um, will then pass on what they know to other people. Um, so in the end, it's a kind of, it's a face-to-face -face thing, a, um, a relationship business. Um, and, and people really learn that way. Um, even more than from books. Um, I'm, I'm all for books. My room is, is piled high with book, books. Talking about mess. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I'm always finding, yes, another book to, to, to have a read of. Um, and, um, um, but nonetheless, I suppose what I really learn is from, uh, from people talking to me, certainly in the Dominicans, you, you, we do a lot of talking in the Dominicans. I mean, some of it is perhaps, you know, too much. <laughs> but um, and obviously we preach. We, we, the, the preached word of God is, is very important in the eyes of the Catholic Church, that um, we preach the word. And obviously the order of preachers, the Dominicans, um, have a particular charism, a particular gift of of. I don't mean we're very gifted preachers, but we, we are, our thing is to preach um, and to make God's word known in all sorts of ways. Nowadays, using modern media, of course, as well as um, the spoken word in um, uh, in church. Somehow, in a way, the spoken word in church is the um, the way by which people hear the word of God uh, now. But but yeah, I mean. Jesus could have written, I think, but somehow he decided not to, that we are the letters that he would have written. Yeah, I love the idea of us as letters. I also have wondered if God, Jesus, was intentionally, uh, there's some mystery there still, so we can't, it's not as solid in the way of a written yeah. word, that somehow the insolidity is important. Yes, Yes, I'm sure that's right, yes, that, that he has, and the very fact that he told parables and so forth, mm -hmm. um, you know, he leaves it to people in some ways to try and understand a bit more, more and more deeply. Um, and I do remember when some, one person who'd, who'd just been um, sectioned uh, to, uh, to a 
mental hospital, a psychiatric hospital. Um, a, a sister and I went to see her because she was a great friend of ours. Mm -hmm. and we took the equipment to say mass. The only flat surface was her bed, actually. But we said mass, and I said, "What what reading shall we have?" And she said, "Oh, the one about the 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 sower and the seed, because I'm the bad ground." Ah. Uh. And I said, oh, yes, all right, let's let's have that reading. But then I went on to talk about how, yes, however bad the ground was, the seed grew. In the end, there was good ground, and, and the seed grew 100-fold, 30-fold, 60-fold, and so on. Um, and that really it's, uh, it's not about saying how bad people are, but how triumphant the word is, which will, in spite of all the badness around, will grow and can grow even in people who think they're bad <laughs> yeah. that, uh, to allow the word to come. So it's, um, yes, yeah. it, it, it's a great, um, it, there's, there's great sort of possibilities from to, to learn more and more and more from the Bible. Yeah. So we yeah. had a caller who called in. This person said that um, as Christians now, we can. I think the question came from you mentioning somebody that was sectioned into a mental hospital, into psychiatric care, and she said that as Christians now, and I don't know if it was her experience, but people can be quick to judge and to persecute, and she wondered nowadays, is it possible that Jesus would be sectioned? Like, and by sec sectioned, in case you don't know what that means, it's when somebody is identified as mentally ill to the degree that they are a danger to themselves or others, and they are. Um, put into psychiatric care until they're well again. Father Colin. Yeah, I think Jesus could well have been sectioned, actually. In fact, people came to try and, some of his own family came to try and uh, take him away because they thought he'd gone a bit but mad. And, uh, of course, uh, the people hearing him in Nazareth were so enraged by what he said that they tried not just to section him but to get rid of him. Um, so, yes, he would be uh, indeed, I think, considered mad by uh, people who didn't want to hear the truth he was telling, just as Paul was also accused of being mad by a Roman governor. And um, he, um, you know, we, we have that very strong possibility that if we are following Christ, we will be so much against the spirit of the time that we will seem mad to, in this mad world. So that's, I think, what I'd say briefly to that. There's much more we could go on to say, but we should end really now, shouldn't we? Yeah, so, I, I, have, I really hope that, dear listener who called in, that that has been helpful and reassuring for you to hear from Father Colin. Father Colin, thank you so much for your time this evening. And yes, please do um, finish with a prayer for us. Lovely. Well, I'll, my signature prayer is the prayer of the Venerable Bede, who said, I implore you, good Jesus, that as in your mercy you have given me to drink in with delight the words of your knowledge, so of your loving kindness you will also grant me one day to come to you, the fountain of all wisdom, and to stand forever before your face. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And Amen.
Good night. God bless. God bless. Thank you, Aileen. You're welcome. Very exciting.